This special edition of Davos Confidential gets started right after this message. Today's episode is presented by Cisco, the worldwide leader in technology and power behind our internet for the last 35 years. Leveraging technology for good, their people are united behind one purpose, to power an inclusive future for all. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Is the European Union ready to become a larger global power of democracy? Are we ready to look beyond the economics? Are we ready to look beyond the intricacies, the chapters, the steps and say we are ready to open our door? Welcome to another special edition of Davos Confidential, coming to you from the World Economic Forum in the Swiss Alps. I'm Sarah Wheaton, Chief Policy Correspondent and the new author of Politico's EU Influence Newsletter. And this is our third edition of these special episodes, which we hope are fueling your week no matter where you're listening from. There's no doubt that Russia's war in Ukraine continues to cast a shadow over the discussions. You just heard at the top of the podcast Roberta Metzola, the president of the European Parliament, describing her vision for the European Union on the world stage. A vision which would see countries like Ukraine join the club sooner rather than later. But her vision isn't shared by all the EU leaders who ultimately get to decide. You'll hear more from Itzola's exclusive interview with Politico's Suzanne Lynch later in the podcast. Also in this episode, you'll hear from the Prime Minister of Moldova, Natalia Galizia, about her country's desire to also join the EU. And the Prime Minister of Ireland, Michal Martin, also discussed the issue of EU enlargement, which, by the way, is Brussels speak for bringing new countries into the EU. On the economic front, author and historian Adam Tooze dives into a debate on the death of globalization. And then professor and journalist Anya Schifrin shares her personal views on the role of women in Davos as a longtime veteran of the World Economic Forum. And finally, we'll hear from the Swiss federal chancellor, Walter Thunher, with some eye-opening observations about this year's conference. But first, it's time to bring in our podcast panel. And joining me again today is the full crew, we have our editor-in-chief, Jamil Anderlini. Hi, sir. Ryan Heath, who's the editorial director of Global Growth and author of Politico's Global Insider Newsletter. Always a pleasure, Sarah. And Suzanne Lynch, author of Brussels Playbook and our current Davos Playbooks. Hello. Which, by the way, you can subscribe to at politico.eu. All right. So if you can imagine listeners being here, it's like, it's like a boxing ring with two sides. You three know, sides. three four sides. sides. Four sides. <laughs> well... But, but sort of two poles here, chomping at the bit, not to mix metaphors, to have a debate that they've been brewing and stewing over all week. Is globalization dead? Ryan Heath, I put it to you first. Absolutely not. We have a situation where globalization run by Davos man 
is kind of changing and that may be over. Um, but it's only the most egocentric people here um, who would say that globalization is really over because globalization is really about interconnection and there's more interconnection than ever. There are problems with supply chains. There is regionalization that is going on both with the internet, politically speaking, democracy versus authoritarianism. Uh, but Everything else is charging along. And if you go to Asia, where our colleague Jamil is a specialist, you couldn't deny that globalization charges ahead in Asia. Okay. As the representative of the most egocentric people, I think he's referring to me, uh, let me just uh, jump in there because you just named like all the most important areas of globalization, right? And here we are in the temple of globalization, Davos, the center of like this idea where it's talked about every year and every year, and there are no Russians. There are no Chinese. There are, there are barely people from most of the rest of the world. And it is a very uh, North America, European, Western-centric. And all the discussions are all about what we, the West, should do about this and about that. So I would say just in the very makeup of the, of the constituents here this week and in the topics of discussion and the way that things are splintering, that, uh, yes, uh, I believe quite strongly that globalization is dying. Well, I mean, I suppose one of the things is we always come upon these moments in history over the last 20 years, like the financial crisis, ooh, is it the end of globalization? You know, now we have a pandemic, ooh, is this a problem for globalization? I mean, the fact is that the pandemic did have massive implications for the global supply chains, and we, we are still feeling the effects of that. Um, it's a huge part of the inflationary picture at the moment. Now, a lot of people in central banks will say this is by definition temporary, that things will settle down, um, but it has been this really uh, visual, kind of concrete example of globalization when you're actually talking about, you know, loaded ships with guns that can't get, or goods. Loaded ships with goods that can't, and maybe that can't get out of ports, etc. And you know, so this has started a really interesting conversation about like reshoring, um, about friendshoring. I love it. So Janet Yellen uh, came up with this phrase the other day, uh, friendshoring, and the idea is you remove supply chains from not friends uh, like China, like Russia. Uh, authoritarian countries, you take supply chains out of those countries and you relocate them not onshore back in the United States, back in Europe, but in friendly countries. So hence, friend shoring. Uh, I would argue that definitely supply chains are splintering. Definitely the world is uh, shifting towards democracies versus autocracies into these uh, much more the situation we have before you know, modern globalization. So we, we're shifting back to a more Cold War world and you can see oh, it in the that's internet. That's really you interesting, You can see it in the internet, the because internet. I didn't realize we all worked from home in hybrid digital work environments in the Cold War. Uh, there's a lot of different layers to this no, uh, situation. Right? So if you're in China, your internet is completely different, completely different. You can't even get Google. You can't get Facebook. You can't get Twitter. You can't get – in China, there is – you're in a completely different internet. It's an intranet, actually, a giant Chinese intranet behind a, uh, the Great Firewall of China. If you were mentioning in Asia uh, greater integration, but actually I think we're not seeing that so much. So China is, has its uh, neo-imperialist, neo-colonialist policies for Asia and for Africa and for Latin America. And the backlash that we're starting to see in places like Sri Lanka, Pakistan, the countries that have been most integrated into the modern Chinese empire are actually, the backlash is astonishing. And I think that's going to continue. Countries in Asia are most afraid of China, don't want to be integrated into. And so I think we're seeing 
some pullback there, actually. If I could um, step out of my moderator role here and, and talk a bit about some of the conversations I've been having as our influence reporter. I've been talking to management consultants here, lobbyists, and they are saying that they're advising their corporate clients to sort of view this a little bit in the lens. They, they don't use the word or the phrase, but strategic autonomy. Very exciting for Macron. But yeah, basically globalization, the link supply chain, has come to bite us in the rear end um, during this period. And so there is more discussion about bringing things back, back home, especially in Germany. Like there was a German management consultant that I was speaking to, and they are feeling very chastened by this philosophy that trade would um, create stability. And so now there's maybe, one might even argue, an over overcorrection in the opposite direction. These are all valid points. I would simply point out that trade in goods is, well, first of all, goods is a minority of the economy. And trade in goods is a super, super minority of the economy. So these influences don't necessarily affect digital trade, China being an exception there. And you have a situation where if you have 100 countries piloting digital currencies and we go up on the promenade and there are just dozens of crypto and other blockchain platforms, all of these processes are examples of globalization in action. So globalization is unfolding in new and different ways, even if there is a stalling out and a risk of political splintering in other ways. So I don't think the overall picture means that globalization is either dead or going backwards. But I mean, this, this trade in goods, I, I don't know. It depends on how you calculate that statistic. But if we're talking about mm. trade in national, natural gas mm-hmm. and oil, then that fuels trade in lots of other things and, and production. Likewise, uh, you know, trade in wheat might mm. be a very small portion of global trade, but if you're about to starve in Egypt. Yeah. But that's also globalization, uh, the globalization of food crisis, the globalization of a pandemic. These are all examples of globalization. What I'm saying is a financially driven, Davos-led globalization is over. So I think, yeah, I think we're getting into definitional disputes rather than ideological disputes, Ryan, because in the end, we're all great friends and uh, very respectful of each other. I would say that um, if you if as I define globalization, it's the fall of the Soviet Union and these two massive blocks that previously were very, very separate, the communist world and the capitalist world integrating. That to me is what I think of when I think of globalization. So it's this idea that Uh, Really, capitalism won, and then capitalism expanded into all these countries where where it had been communist. And that's my sort of definitional idea of it. And I think what we're seeing is not a return to, you know, to communism in in these other countries, but you are returning to, I believe, an ideological war in the sense of, like, autocracies on the one hand, democracies on the one hand, and economies that have been very, very well integrated, starting to come apart, both in the digital sphere and in the supply of real goods and supply chains. And that's what friendshoring and that's what reshoring, that's what these things mean. And and as I say, I do think you see it in the digital economy and you do see it in digital trade and, and, because, uh, and, and financial flows because more and more Russia is obviously being cut off by sanctions and more and more you know, China and like-minded countries are starting to... Of course, there are some straddling countries, Saudi Arabia, our favorite country, of course, uh, and, and some of these others that are trying to play at both... Uh, Singapore, these countries that are trying to really straddle both, right? They're trying to be authoritarian on the one hand and like, oh, yes, but no, we're really friendly and open and capitalist. You will see a bit of that, but I do think we're going into a bipolar world to a certain extent, autocracy versus democracy. Okay, so maybe maybe we can at least have some degree of consensus on this idea that at least... 
the WEF version of globalization is over, if not a more epic breakdown. Can yeah, I think, Ryan's, yeah. I think Ryan's nailed it. It's the WEF definition, this temple of WEF, Davos man, uh, globalization. Where it's all about opening markets yeah. rather than having rules for those markets or considering other political risks when you go into markets. That's, that's what's over. Well, and I'm glad you invoked Davos man because a bit later in, in the podcast, we'll be talking about the difficult position of the Davos women. Um, but before we do that, let's, um, let me just check in with you guys about what you're planning for tomorrow, the last day of the conference. Well, I mean, the big figure to watch will be the German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz. He's due to give a keynote address. Um, I mean, we heard grumblings from some people about why is this so late in the program? A lot of people are going to be out of here. Um, so we don't know, you know, is that strategic on his part? I mean, let's face it, Scholz has not been having a great time with things over the last few months. So it'll be interesting to see, I think, how Scholz approaches uh, his address to this kind of global audience here. All right. Well, we'll see how that goes. Um I would normally let you folks go, but I'm going to have you stick around to introduce us to the people that you've been talking to at the WEF today. And Suzanne, we're going to start with you. So, yeah, Sarah, given that we're just discussing globalization, um, I sat down with a few people. I grabbed Adam Toos. He's the uh, academic and author based at Columbia University. And I asked him about his views on whether we were at the end of globalization. The headline earlier in the week was like the end of globalization. I thought the FT. I mean, do you think it's over? Rush? Do you think? Yeah, it's overall. It's unhelpful. And it's uh, it's a bad way of thinking about um, the problem. I was having a really interesting chat from the guy from the National, the UAE newspaper, and he said, "This is though we all live on Twitter all the time right now, and everything's turned up to eleven the whole time." And so. You know, after COVID, which was the end of the world, there was the war, which is the end of the world, and the war, which is the end of the world, will bring about the end of globalization. And, and it's, it's BS, right? Um, I mean, what we're going to see is a reconfiguration of globalization, um, rearrangement, politicization in certain respects, reconfiguration of certain relationships. Yeah. It wasn't all that flat globalized anyway to start with, right? Yeah. So globalization was never this homogenous thing which is now requiring structure yeah. it was always actually to a very large extent structured around a series of essentially bilateral trilateral relations china was the center of one europe was another the us north Af- north america so not so much a break as, as a as a morphing and the development and uh, i mean the costs of breaking when people say this they're either naive or apocalyptic because the ending globalization it's like life as we know it would, would cease to yeah. exist what about you know the way with the with covid pandemic and supply chain issues yeah. and say i'm in brussels at the moment there's lots of talk in europe about strategic autonomy and yeah. i suppose a lot of people think that's protectionist basically by countries like france you know that's impossible though isn't it really i mean for you know europe to start really generating i don't know so much so many semiconductors for example that you know or you know it's metaphoric language which has gone a bit haywire you know Europe could have strategic autonomy if it if it organized its military spending more effectively. It wouldn't even need to increase it. It just literally needs to pool it in a single big fund, do away with national militaries. And they would already have a very high degree of actual strategic autonomy. They would have deployable troops, logistic capacity, long-range projection. For 250-odd billion, which is what Europe spends, you could actually have a potent military capacity. And instead, they don't. And then there's all this talk about strategic autonomy in areas like, you know, protective face masks or something, or microchips, which are a huge stretch because they're just so damn difficult to do. Americans can't do them. 
So that tells you this is well nigh impossible to do because it's at the utterly outer limits of our human technological capacities and replicating that more than once anywhere on the planet is really difficult. So there's this weird disproportion between the things where that term, which is quite ambitious, could actually very well be filled with very concrete meaning if only you did some banal but politically difficult rearrangements. And on the other hand, then this grasping for huge, incredibly complex leaps, which just kind of pie in the sky. Yeah. And, have, yeah. and so it fulfills this language, this talk fulfills some pretty weird functions, I think. And, um, I suppose the issue is that, like, we were joined earlier on by European Parliament President Roberta Metzola. She dropped by the political podcast studio in the Congress Hall. It's her first time here in WEF since she was appointed the Parliament President back in January. She was only here for a few hours, uh, but we started off uh, talking about the big topic here, and that's, of course, Ukraine. Ukraine is dominating this event. Do you feel that Europe has stepped up, that it's doing enough in this moment of crisis. Well, you are definitely right that Ukraine is, is dominating this event. And what if it weren't, you know? In fact, my fear mm. coming here was that it wouldn't. Uh, mm. And I'm very glad that uh, uh, leaders, uh, business partners can come together and say, how are we going to address this issue? And what we saw this morning, I mean, in the panel that I was in, you know, is that there is a unity that we have not uh, seen before, something that I would not have thought would be possible. And I very much uh, welcome it and I continue to work for it. I represent the European Parliament that is almost unanimous in going to be pushing for as much uh, support to Ukraine as possible, especially in the crucial days and weeks ahead. Yeah, because you're talking about EU unity and yet we are, I don't know how many weeks since at the European Parliament in Strasbourg, Ursula von der Leyen stood there and said, we have a sixth package of sanctions. That has still not been agreed. What's your view on that? Well, the first packages of sanctions were were agreed within hours uh, and then passed through Europe to national parliaments. Again, unprecedented, previously impossible. The harder the sanctions are, the more close, let's say, to national politics it gets. It always gets difficult, right? We are realists. We know this is politics, but also this is about uh, economic realities in different member states. But I remain, let's say, cautiously optimistic that at the end of the day, when prime ministers are around a table, they can come together to say that this is a make or break moment. Mm -hmm. President Zelensky addressed an event I went to earlier today and said, look, the world thought that we would capitulate within five days. We are still here and it's our spirit that is not broken. And if we now turn away and with our turning away break that spirit, what? how can we explain that to ourselves? But do you think that member states, I mean, the parliament has been very strong on its resolution. Do you think member states need to step up here? Yeah, you are right. I mean, not only have they are they still debating the last but the next package of sanctions, but uh, there are loopholes in the current packages uh, that are not uh, fully enforced and they are being looked away from. So I am I am very extremely vocal on that. And I think it's, it, it's extremely dangerous for for member states to sort of try to get away from doing that. But what I think is that on these issues, there is the possibility for us to find uh, that unity. It's been a long time since the parliament has said, look, zero dependence on Russia for gas and oil and coal. We also said there are some countries that are 100% reliant on Russia. So different timelines can apply. That does not mean that you need to block a package of sanctions. That does not mean that you need to say, look, I'm not going to do anything else unless you give me what I want. It It means, however, understand my reality. I need to explain it to my people. 
I need to make sure that I can cushion the blow economically on people's inability uh, increasingly to, play, to pay their energy bills. And I think that's where the European Union could shift its focus on. And we heard that also with uh, economic uh, packages that will be uh, adopted in order for us to be able to say politically we are still on track. Economically, we need to make sure our citizens don't bear the brunt of it. Mm. Another issue is, again, stepping up to Ukraine for Ukraine enlargement. And there is some resistance from member states about enlarging. I mean, what's your view on that? There has always been resistance uh, from many member states uh, in all enlargement processes. I remember uh, the very difficult uh, process leading up to the enlargement of my country and another nine that took decades for for it uh, to happen. Different tracks, different member states were given different parts, different asks, etc. So there uh, we are in a situation where we have to ask ourselves the question, is the European Union ready to become a larger global power of democracy? Are we ready to look beyond the economics? Are we ready to look beyond the intricacies, the chapters, the steps, and say we are ready to open our door for countries that share the same principles, values, rule of law, democracy that we and our countries fought for in order to join this club? Now, of course, some others might say yes, but it's about timing and this might take long. How are we going to not say that Ukraine is a candidate country? Uh, we have to be ready to, with the speed that Ukraine has answered the, the questionnaire. When I met President Zelensky on the 1st of April, he said we will answer the questionnaire in record speed. And that's exactly what happened, because Ukraine is ready to take it to the next step. Are we ready? I think we should be, because otherwise we would have failed them. And within the European Parliament, as you say there, they passed this resolution calling for this full ban of, of oil, coal and gas. And yet, am I right in saying there's been a shift in the European Parliament because there was quite a sizable minority, but dozens of, of MEPs who voted against the resolution on Russia in December. And, you know, there are some vocal MEPs are out on um, Russian media, on Chinese media, who question Ukraine. What would you say to those MEPs, those members of, of the European Parliament? I would tell you to look at resolutions passed even earlier, mm. where uh, in a previous uh, G- um, German government, so with, with mm. the previous German coalition, the way the votes have shifted since uh, the decision of the German government to suspend Nord Stream 2, that's also a significant number that you can look at. Of course, at the extremes, uh, both on the left and on the right, you have Putin sympathizers. You have MEPs that are have or have been close to the Kremlin regime. Now, they are much less than they used to be, much less vocal. And why? Because our populations are holding us to account. Now, we are a democracy. You are responsible for your decisions and your votes and your statements. And I would ask the populations to hold those members accountable for their decisions and their statements. Very interesting. Um, on Brexit, I know you were just on a panel with the Irish Taoiseach. I don't know, I'm Irish myself. You know, this has come back Back onto the agenda, the British government announced last week it wanted to renegotiate or reopen the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, what's your view on that as the head of the Parliament? Uh, I uh, am extremely strong and have the strongest of mandates, which is completely in line with the European Commission, that we are not reopening around, we are not renegotiating that protocol. We heard the Taoiseach this morning in a panel who said, look, in Ireland and also in other countries, how Brexit happened and how the misinformation and the lies were spread during that referendum campaign. Look where we are now with, if I can say so, the same actor meddling in that campaign. So our answer needs to be steadfast 
steadfast protection of Ireland, of the protocol, and making sure that all the rules are applied. Okay. And just to when you say the same actor, you mean the same British government, the same leader? No, no I no. meant Russia. Oh, sorry, sorry, I meant sorry. Russia okay. in terms of uh, misinformation that was used in yeah. order to be spread. Interesting. And you and and targeted to particular audiences. Yeah. Just in terms of who you're meeting here at the World Economic Forum, maybe tell us your impressions. Have you been here before? What are you expecting to get out of this event? I've never been here before. This is my first time. I am meeting mostly prime ministers uh, who uh, we need to work on for next week's decision. So I, some of them are old friends, some of them are new colleagues. There is, a, I could say, a new dynamic in the European Council with the newly elected prime ministers and there's a sense of we need to do something. At the same time, you know, a lot of uh, uh, journalistic interviews and, uh, yeah. and, and meetings also with, with representatives of tech companies in order for them to provide payment platforms for money to actually flow into Ukraine easily. And just to clarify, you mean the EPP meeting next week? or the European no, Council. The European Council, the European sorry. European Council, okay. but they overlap. Great. And then um, just finally, in terms of uh, the EU's presence here, I don't know, has there been any meetings with like non-EU countries? I mean, it's not just Europe, it's not just America. Are there any other, you know areas you're interested in? Well, I've, I've met uh, with a, a very big number of Ukrainian members of parliament okay. and ministers. Uh, I have a meeting with the Prime Minister of Moldova uh, in a few minutes, uh, actually now. Uh, but it's also what's fascinating about this place. It's like you walk in the corridor and you see people you meet and you just like say, oh, hi, you're here too. Let's get, let's catch up in Brussels. Let's find a way to, to meet. And it's, I must say, I've missed this after two years of seeing people over a screen. That's the best part about being here. So as Roberta Metzler mentioned there, she was due to have a meeting with the Prime Minister of Moldova, Natalia Gavrilica. Actually, uh, she decided to join us in the podcast studio. So the two hugged and embraced. They actually go back a long way. So, you know, these are the kind of relationships, the kind of meetings you see all the time here. Um, But we grabbed a few words um, with Gavrilica uh, about Ukraine and about EU membership. Just maybe you could tell us about why you're here at the World Economic Forum. I am here to uh, promote Moldova. Uh, Moldova has become known as the small country with a big heart. Uh, We are uh, implementing the reforms necessary for accession to the EU. We have submitted our uh, request uh, and uh, uh, we are talking here to heads of government, to uh, officials, but also to the private sector about the need to anchor Moldova in the European space both through candidate status and through strategic geopolitical investments. Okay, great. And Ukraine, obviously, is a big focus in terms of where the discussion here for you guys as well, Ukraine. Certainly, uh, the events uh, in Ukraine are a catalyst that have provided this uh, crunch time for the European Union and a historic opportunity uh, for EU enlargement. Thank you. So one of the big themes, of course, this week has been Ukraine. Um, But really, the Kiev government has come away with very little, really, from Davos. One of the issues that has been up for discussion throughout the week has been the whole issue of EU enlargement, i.e. when and if Ukraine will join the EU. Um, The Irish leader, the Taoiseach, Michal Martin, he made some interesting points earlier on. He was was speaking to a small uh, group of journalists, including uh, Politico, and he made the point that he could be open to changing the EU treaties to make sure that the veto that is there that allows countries to block accession to other wannabe EU members, that that could be looked at. I was signalling, really, that we're not closing the door against treaty change in the aftermath of the Conference on the Future of Europe. Um, some might want to do that I, I'm of a view that we should be very open to that open to the discussion and let's see how far we can go um, in respect of 
making uh, Europe more efficient in terms of the conduct of its business. Thanks so much, Suzanne. We're going to take a short break and come back with two Davos veterans who give us the real inside scoop. Stay with us. And now a message from Cisco. Cisco's purpose is to power an inclusive future for all. An inclusive future isn't possible without a livable planet. Together, we must focus on what makes the most significant impact on the environment. Addressing climate change, driving a circular economy, and being responsible stewards of the planet's limited resources. Cisco enables customers to reduce their own environmental footprints using technology and supports innovators to develop solutions that respond to the consequences of a changing climate. Sustainability and climate change are intertwined with many of the biggest challenges facing the world today. It will take all of us to deliver an inclusive and sustainable future. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Anya Schifrin is a globetrotting financial journalist, author, and director of the Technology, Media, and Communications Specialization at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. That in and of itself should be enough to get someone invited to attend the World Economic Forum, no? But Anya, who, full disclosure, is a friend and personal mentor of mine, is also married to Nobel Prize-winning economist Joseph Stiglitz. Now, the only reason why I'm telling you who she's married to is because this is why Anya has attended the WEF for about 20 years. And she became known for her writing on the role of women, particularly the wives of the men, like her husband, who are regularly invited to attend. I was a journalist for years, and then I met my husband when I interviewed him, and he's a real Davos veteran. I think it's been more than 30 years that he's been coming here. And so I started coming here as a wife with him on the blank spouse's badge probably about 20 years ago. And so between the two of us, we've seen a hell of a lot of Davos. I was pretty shocked the first time I wound up at Davos. I think that one of the salient characters 
characteristics about Davos is everybody who comes feels really confused and overwhelmed the first time. And there's also something which is Davos makes everybody feel bad. <laughs> so everybody's convinced. It doesn't matter if you're a zillionaire or a head of state or literally I had a conversation yesterday, you know, a senator. You're always convinced you got the worst panel, you didn't get invited to the most exclusive dinner, and you're in the worst hotel room. But what I kind of became known for was I would think I was pretty much the first person to start writing sort of satirical, funny articles about Davos that really focused on the treatment of women. I think I was probably the first person to write about the fact that spouses were given blank badges with no affiliation at all, not even a chance to say something like, I love cats. So everybody who looks at you at Davos looks at your badge and would see that it was blank and then look away. So lots and lots of women felt totally invisible and really unseen. And a lot of women I know as a result stopped coming. So I would make friends. They used to have these wives activities like we could take a horse and carriage to the fondue and uh, you know the wives would all go. And I remember one year getting in a big argument because I was against the Iraq war and nobody would sit with me on the way back except for Justin Fox's wife, Alison Downing, who's still a really close friend. That was how we met when I was ostracized funny about Iraq. Um, so they would have these events for women and then Otherwise, there just wasn't a lot for us to do. So I wrote a lot about the hierarchy of Davos and the feeling that there was always some great lounge somewhere with lobster sandwiches that nobody else could get into. And, uh, you know, it starts at the airport. Do you get the limo? Don't you get the limo? Uh, or are you on the shuttle bus with everybody else? So I really kind of spoofed a lot of the hierarchy. And I even talked about, um, you know, the, the lowest of the low was the Davos mistress who couldn't even get into anything, not even a hotel badge. But so since then, Davos has grown in that there's so many different side events now. So I think there's all these sub-communities that didn't exist before. I think one really sad thing that's happened is the sort of privatization of the public square. So all of us wives who couldn't get into sessions used to be able to go to the coffee shops and, you know, drink hot chocolate and talk to each other. And that's all been taken over now. Everything is, you know, the India House or the, you know, Salesforce or Meta. So all the sort of fun life in Davos, I would say, is kind of... Um doesn't really exist anymore the way it used to. Yeah, and let's just explain this context for people who, who've never been to Davos. And this is my first time, so I was shocked. I was like, how is there so much meeting space or display space for businesses, for for countries, for Indian states, uh, you know, as we were saying, and as Christina, our, our producer, actually explained to me, these stores and these cafes let these interest groups just kind of completely take them over. So um, I yeah. think they make more money renting to a business for a week over Davos than staying, you know, than they make the rest of the year. That's what I'm told. Now, I obviously get that in the scheme of the problems of the world, this is all very, very minor. Another feature of Davos is there's always a lot of like protests and anti-capitalism protests as well. But I, I think also Davos has made, the WEF has made a big effort to try to engage more with really important subjects. This year is a really different year because there's no not really anybody from China, and there isn't really anybody from Russia, which I've heard, by the way, means that all the Russian prostitutes aren't here. So that's a that's a bit of a difference from from other years. Um, I think they have made an effort on on including more women, people of color, people from the global south. But it you know it's fundamentally a very business focused event. But yeah, and let's let's go back to a point that may be kind of 
bugging some people as they're listening to this. So we were talking about wives not getting access to sessions. And like, you are very accomplished. If I bumped into you here, I would just assume that you were here because of your role as a journalist, because of your role as a professor at Columbia, you know, but maybe not all the other wives like are here on their own wherewithal. And I mean, what does that just sort of say about like, the broader situation that we're still in, we're like these titans of industry and these major political leaders, you know, they're all still mostly men. Yeah, I mean, I must say, obviously, it's partly that my feelings get hurt that the WEF organizes all kinds of fascinating sessions on stuff that I totally know about and care about and teach about and write about and I'm not included. So of course, that's always a little humiliating. But also, it feels to me that it's really low-hanging fruit. I mean, if you wanted to immediately, you know, quadruple the number of women involved, hey, just look at the wives or even the staffers, the secretaries, you know. There's a lot of really interesting women who are right under the noses of the WEF organizers who aren't getting included. And Bradley, why don't you tell us about some of the research that you've been doing? If you were to hold a panel where you got to also pick the guests and the topic, like what would it look like here? Oh, thank you. Well, one subject I'm really interested in is regulation of big tech, which of course I know is a subject that you know Politico has covered in great detail. But the fact that Europe is right in the middle of enacting the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act has a dra- you know is getting consultation on an EU media freedom law. And and also AI, to me, that's absolutely ripe for discussion. So I was really hoping to be able to sit in on some of the sessions here on that topic, and I was amazed that there weren't more sessions on that subject. One of the advantages of Davos is that it's a chance for us to come and hear European viewpoints and find out what's going on outside the U.S. Disinformation and how Europe's dealing with that is absolutely something I I would have expected to see. So I think there's a lot of issues around sort of tech regulation, which I would love to see more represented at WEF. And if they ever want me to help organize, I would be happy to do it. Thank you so much, Anya Schifrin. Thank you for having me. This was really nice to see you both. And finally, we've saved you, Jamil, for the very end. Tell us about our final guest for today. So I managed to catch up with the Swiss Federal Chancellor, Walter Turnher, and I had an extremely surprising and interesting conversation. I'm uh, walking to the Congress Centre in Davos with the Swiss Federal Chancellor, old friend of mine, Walter Turnher. Uh, great to see you, sir. Hello, Channel. Nice to see you here in Davos. Yeah, so uh, tell me, what, what's the mood? What is, what's your feeling about Davos this year? Oh, it's, I'm so glad to be back, to meet all the people physically, not only virtually. Of course, it's different. It's not uh, in winter. The mood is different. There are less people over here. But it's quite interesting to see all the people again. And you just told me something very interesting, a statistic, a a factoid about Davos. Can you repeat that to me? Uh Aha, I just told you. I mean, uh, earlier there were many more parties and the mood was different. I've even even been told that there was a record cocaine in Davos in Switzerland. There's never been a place where I discovered so much cocaine as here in Davos. But I think these times are over now. So, yeah, when it's not snowing, and it's not snowing in several different ways. <laughs> in a more serious note, what, is the, uh, what do you think the big topics? I mean, obviously, Ukraine's a big deal. What are you, what are you focused on this year? And what do you think the, the sort of the main centre of the discussion is? Oh, of course, everybody's talking about the war in Ukraine. 
everybody is talking about economics because inflation is a, a big risk. But above all, I mean, the brothers Klitschko are here. Zelensky was speaking yesterday. It is the big, the main subject. Yeah, and uh, what about um, from Switzerland's perspective? It's been very interesting. You're, you're traditionally, obviously, a neutral country. But in this case, Switzerland seems to have taken a bit of a side in this uh, conflict. Yes, I mean, uh, neutrality has always been confused by uh, abstaining everything. I mean, we had a clear position and we uh, shared the sanctions. We said our position very clearly, explained it. Uh, but we are still neutral in the sense that we don't delivering weapons to the parties of conflict. But we don't say we just shut up. We say our position very clearly. You, you don't see a day ever where Switzerland might join NATO? No, actually. <laughs> the, the mood here in, the, in Switzerland is quite clear. We, we stay neutral. We want to be neutral. But that doesn't mean that we don't have an opinion. Thank you so much, sir. It's great to, great to see you. Thank you, Jamil. And that's all the time we have for our third episode of Davos Confidential. We'll bring you a final episode on Thursday. So if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to EU Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. And remember that we are also writing a daily newsletter. So go to politico.eu and subscribe to our Davos playbook. Thanks today to James Randerson and to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.